0: Welcome to another Rich Text Book Club episode. I'm Claire. And I'm Emma. And today we're joined by
1: a very dear friend, Jessica Goodman, the author of They Wish They Were Us, who is a brand new, twisty, fun, thrilling novel out this week.
0: Yes, it's called They'll Never Catch Us. And like her fantastic first book, it's a YA thriller. It's about murder, gossip, the terrifying landscape that is the high school lunchroom and competitive young women with ambitions that are just too big for the boxes they're expected to fit into.
1: Jess, thank you so much for being here and on pub day. Thank you so much for having me. This is
2: such a treat. I am not only a friend, but also a fan.
0: <laughs> Likewise. Well, yeah,
1: the feeling is mutual. <laughs> how, how does it feel to have your second book baby out in the world a new child it feels good
2: I was like super anxious and stressed at like last week and I think that's just par for the course but today I'm feeling good you know I went to some bookstores saw the book in the world and talked to some booksellers and that's always really fun and then I also saw my agent who gave me
1: cupcakes so
0: that's always really nice
1: cupcakes (laughs) always make everything better that's just a life rule
0: absolutely And I want to set the scene here. Jess is wearing a custom, they'll never catch us t-shirt, which I'm obsessed with. It's so good. It's from, <laughs> it's from red receipts, right?
2: Yeah. her name is Chantal, like at READ receipts um, on Instagram. She embroiders all my book t-shirts that I make every year. Just the second one that I've done, but I, yeah, I'm wearing <laughs> like head to toe um, merch. I would say I have like special hair ties that say they'll never catch us on it also. So I, I have am one too. To- oh. Claire's wearing her. So I'm <laughs> um, extremely
1: extra today, which I feel like go- is par for the courts when you do something big, like really. Oh, simple. no, that's fantastic. I feel that Claire and I need to make merch just so we can shamelessly wear it every time we record a podcast.
2: I mean, I would <laughs> buy merch from you guys. so I
1: feel like you, I feel like you actually need to do that, though. <laughs> no, it actually is uh, legitimately on our list. But before we kind of get into a discussion of the bigger themes of this book, for our listeners who may not be familiar, can you kind of explain the premise to us? Yes, totally.
2: So they'll never catch us follows two sisters who are super close in age and they're hyper competitive with one another. They live in a small town in the Catskills and they're both vying for the top spot on their cross country team, which is really the only way that young women can kind of get out of the small town and the Catskills. Um, they're both vying for, for college scholarships because their family can only afford to send one of them to school. But when a new girl, Mila Keen, comes to town, she threatens to be better than both of them and kind of upsets the whole social hierarchy in this town and on the cross-country team. And when she goes missing under mysterious, suspicious circumstances, everyone turns to these two sisters, the Speckler sisters, and thinks that they had something to do with it, and so the story unfolds as a who done it. Um, you know what happened to Mila Keen, and if the sisters had anything to do with her disappearance. Um, this is a story that's really about like young female anger in a lot of ways and rage. And I think Claire said it so well: like girls who don't want to fit into the boxes that society tells them to. Um, so, so yeah, it's um, it's dark in a lot of ways, and it's also about like the kind of in, like unbreakable but very tumultuous bonds between sisters as well
0: yeah there's really so much to dig into in this book but um cross-country is clearly so central and like the whole book is just bathed in the world of cross-country um you know the girls are always going for practice runs together alone they're heading to meets they're checking out each other's stats they're getting emails from recruiters um, so it's really like steeped in cross country. How did you decide to set your book in this particular sport? And like, how did you research it in order to write something so detailed about it?
2: Yeah, I I am not a runner. Like <laughs> I, I hate running and have tried multiple times, especially while writing and like doing marketing for this book. Like I really tried to get into running. It's just not for me, but the, I, I came up with the idea for this book back in like 2017 when there was a whole spate of like true crime cases of young women who were going out for jogs or runs and disappearing or being abducted or being murdered. there was, I don't know if you guys remember this, but there was like a, a trend, almost like if you want to say it, say it like that, where this was just happening all the time. And I was an editor at Cosmopolitan at the time, and so we were covering this quite a bit. And I just couldn't shake the idea uh, like of how disturbing and upsetting it was that something that these women and that, you know, a lot of young women do for fun, for health, for strength, um, that it could also be the thing that kills them. You know, I was just so disturbed by that idea because going for, go, doing something as simple as going for a jog or going for a run should, like it's when you feel the strongest or the freest. I mean, not me. Cause I said, I don't run, but like <laughs> physical activity is something that's just like so good for you. And the fact that like, it cannot, it can also be something that harms you is, um, just something, it's just, I couldn't stop thinking about that idea. And so that's kind of where the genesis of the story came from. And, you know, in order to really like understand that world, I did do a lot of research. Like I spent a lot of time watching cross-country meets on YouTube, like high school meets. Um, and I, I, at the end of my revisions, I discovered cross-country on TikTok. There's like a whole world of high school cross-country stars, um, you know, on TikTok. And they like documenting their, um, training regimens and the, like the, the, how muddy they get and like all of the crazy kind of like rituals that go on in in terms of like getting ready for a meet or like bonding with your team. Um, and so that was like really helpful too, because I could just kind of like live inside their world, you know, like these TikTokers so intimate in a lot of ways when you're like in a girl's bedroom and she's like showing you like, you know, the sit-ups she does before she goes to practice and like all that stuff. So, um, that really
1: helped. You can truly learn about anything on TikTok. It's amazing. I think you bring up such an important point when you talk about the origin story of of this book in that there is both like a fundamental strength in in the rituals that the women in the book um, adhere to, to train and also a fundamental vulnerability in those rituals. And it's Mm -hmm. sort of that tension that is present throughout the entire story. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry,
2: go ahead. No, no, that's it, yeah. I agree, 100%.
0: (laughs) Yeah, and it's something that comes up a couple of times because there are also these cold cases in the town where this is set from actually not that long ago, like 10 years before the events of the book. there were several girls in relatively quick succession who are star cross country runners who disappeared while they are out for runs and who were later found to be, have been murdered. And, um, and when it happens again, these, the women on the team, the girls on the team are told that they are barred from going on training runs alone. And the reaction is, you know, on the adult side is we're protecting you, like you're vulnerable to this. The boys team isn't so they can keep running. Um, And for the girls, it feels so deeply unfair that they're being prevented from doing what they want to do by this kind of rule. And I feel like that's like such an ongoing fundamental tension in in feminist dialogue is like, how do we protect women from the violence of, presumably men, um, without restricting their movement. Mm. Um, and it's hard to, it's hard. I mean, you just kind of capture that it's hard to even know what the answer is.
2: (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I certainly don't have an answer, but I definitely wanted to point out the hypocrisy of all of this and the fact that like there was, like in in the book, there's like nothing, like the boys aren't restricted from doing anything. They can just like keep going about their business. And I think when you're a teenage girl, like that's when you really, or at least for me, that's when I really started to see like such distinctions in the ways that like coaches and teachers and all adults like treated girls and boys. Like it was, it was just so unbelievably stark. Um, and I think when you're that age, like you also like don't have all the answers, but like you're furious. Like at least for like you know, my my girls in this book are furious at at what's happening, and they feel powerless to do anything about it. Um,
1: at that specific point in the book, right? You're almost like in in this place of of burgeoning independence, while at the same time you're still a minor. You're you still have to adhere to rules that you didn't make, um, enforced by people who aren't you and your peers, and something else that they kind of push up against that, that we touched on is this question of, of ambition and the power of female ambition and the way that women's ambition is both like feared and, and venerated. Um, and you know, you, you point out a couple of times in the book, the ways that the open displays of competitiveness are celebrated on the boys team, but the girls are expected to be like quiet and ladylike and contained. What sort of interests you about the way that ambition and competitiveness specifically are treated in girls?
2: Yeah. I mean, I think we're like, we're seeing this like so much play out on the Olympic stage right now, like how, Uh, I mean, and in like professional athleticism, like all the time, like, you know, like Serena Williams gets fined and like, you know, docked a a set or I forgot if it was a game or a set, you know, for, for screaming at the ref. But like, you've seen a million times men do that and like nothing happens. Um, I mean, I think it's just, I mean, it's crazy making, you know, it's, it's just like, why, why do we hold women to such different standards while also, you know, wanting them to dominate in, I mean, this is just for the Olympics, like specifically right now, like we want women to dominate like in every single field. And like, they're saying that, you know, like Katie Ledecky winning a silver instead of a gold is like a huge devastation when it's like, they're also holding her to the standard of like being, being like a a very, um, you know, like collegial female uh, competitor. And it's like, well, what do you want her to be? Do you want her to be a robot or do you want her to be like a real human? And, And I think it's like it, that that kind of um, juxtaposition is just so like frustrating to me because it's like we're all human and athletes are human and to expect them to be anything but is so unfair to not only them but also like the, the future of whatever sport you're talking about. Um, and you know, like I said, like I'm not really like an athlete in my own right. like you know, I played some tennis in high school, but like you know I think it's just like watching this kind of stuff play out. It's like you feel for these athletes like I mean and, you know we're talking, on Tuesday, July 27th. And that's, this is the day that, um, you know, Simone Biles pulled out pulled out of the final. And, you know, I'm, I think there's a lot of questions about this and, and what's going on, but the, the kind of discourse around this right now is like so unfair to her, you know, it's it's just like, God, like let this woman live. And and I think right. it's, it's really hard when we put so much pressure on these people to be not only perfect, but also, um, you know, humble and feminine and, Um, you know, ladylike in in a lot of ways. And it's
0: just bullshit. Yeah. It's like,
1: how the fuck are you supposed to, you know, be all of those things at once?
0: You can't, you can't, you just can't. Yeah. I think with, with Stella, especially you capture the way that this creates like this pressure cooker, because there's this, this lid clamping down on all the force of, of ambition and competitiveness and hunger that the coach, Um, of the team and the recruiters and her teammates and her parents are trying to foster in her. Like they want her to be so driven and so hungry, but then you're putting this huge lid of like, but without ever like talking shit without ever like having an explosive display of aggression. Whereas we have a very, like, boys will be boys attitude. Like, Oh, they got to get their aggression out. They've got to like bump their chests together. Um, but you know, we see those things as connected in boys. Like they've got to vent their competitive like steam a little bit. But with girls, we're like, close the steam vents. Like no steam is getting out. Like it's all just gonna keep bubbling away in there until they go to college and everything is great. Um, or everything explodes (laughs) or they lose or they like really
2: need serious help in a lot of ways and like kind of lose their minds Um, well then we we want them to go
1: away and be quiet Jess and then we can (laughs) forget about them that's how it works of course that's also Claire. that's like a really good metaphor I'm gonna hold on to
2: that one
0: yeah (laughs) well I had never actually thought that much about this because I don't I I don't have a history as an athlete, really, unless you count like never playing in the actual lacrosse games freshman year of, of high school. Um, so I think it's just fascinating how the way you draw these characters like pulled this out and made me want to really think about it. And I've been thinking about the athletes in the Olympics differently because of, of having just read your book. So it was really, really thought provoking to me. Um, oh, thank you. And we should talk also about the sister relationship, I think, uh, which is so fascinating.
1: Fascinating. I mean, I don't have a sister. Claire does not have a sister either. So is this what it's like? (laughs) Yeah. I love, I think I love reading about sisters because that's not an experience that I've had, but it does always feel a little foreign to me. Um, and the two central characters, Stella and Ellie, have this really fascinating sister relationship, you know, they are like alternately inextricably tied to one another and also like deeply alienated from each other in a lot of ways. What about the sister relationships were you specifically interested in exploring?
2: Yeah. I mean, I I have a sister we're 18 months apart and my, I think why I like, I wanted to write a book about sisters because being a sister is like such an important part of my identity. Like, you know, I, you know, I I, like most of my life I have been not, not necessarily like compared directly with her, but like we've been lumped together in a lot of ways because we're 18 months apart. We went to the same high school. We did all the same activities. We went to the same college. We were in the same sorority. We moved to the same city after college. Like we've had very parallel lives and we are really different like personality wise um, and we're very close but like we've like I existed completely in context in context and in conversation with her you know like all of my teachers knew me as like Hallie's sister and then would like compare me you know they're <laughs> like you know our coaches would do the same thing about like you know how what like if they expected something if they knew something from her they would expect it from me and, and vice versa sometimes and I think that that is just like I mean it's it's I've always just been interested in like what that dynamic can do to people. Like with friends, you know, it's like you fight, you make up, you fight, maybe you don't make up and you kind of can like drift away from each other. Like I've never felt like I, and I don't want to drift from my sister, but I've never felt like I've been able to, it's like, this person is like so inextricably linked to you and tied to you. And like, you are with each other forever. And in some ways it's like, you're the only people that know what actually goes on inside your family and inside your house. And like, I kept thinking, you know, like at the end of the day, like who's going to be left like of my family and it's like her, you know? And, and I, um, I don't know. I've just always been like obsessed with that, with like that idea of uh, the idea of that relationship and also like living inside of that relationship and knowing how um, intimate and intense and um, hard at times, but also beautiful. It is like, I really wanted to capture that. And I think a lot of books, Like I read, I've read a lot of books about sisters and and love movies about sisters and stuff. And I, I, my, my biggest pet peeve about them is when they sugarcoat things and they're just like (laughs) sisters love each other forever. And they always have each other's backs. And no matter what, it's just you and me. And I'm sorry, but that's just like, not how it is. Like everyone's more like everyone is a real person and like fights with their siblings. But the beauty of like this kind of relationship is that at the end of the day, you know, you, like you most likely will be there for each other and like will have each other's back even if the other person like you know maybe is involved in a murder or something like
1: that uh, <laughs> just like lo- very low key yeah very just like normal very yeah very sister problems hashtag sister problems
2: exactly, sister exactly. Problems. <laughs> exactly. yeah um, and so I just wanted to write like a real relationship where these girls like fought and made up and like it was really it was actually really important for me to show that they fought and that they like were fighting actively and like were so mad at each other but that that anger and that fury and that desire to fight did not mean that they weren't close and didn't mean that they weren't you know going to be there for each other it just meant that like relationships are complicated and like you have to move through them um with like intention and um that's really what I wanted to capture
0: that's so interesting I I'm like thinking so much about my own life as I, as we talk about this and not having had a sister, I'm like, is that why I really struggle with conflict with other women? Like, I'm afraid of it because I'm like, if I fight with them, they might be gone. And I've never had like a sister to like practice female conflict with or something. I'm just like, so intrigued by that.
1: Such an interesting point, Claire. I've never thought about like my lack of sister as having anything to do with my approach to conflict in like friendships, but that's, that's so that is really, really interesting. Cause there is this, like, it's like the forced closeness, both, uh, facilitates a resolution to conflict, but also creates conflict. Like it's very natural to be in conflict with someone that is so attached to you without, Without choice, <laughs> like
0: <laughs> totally, yeah, are just around all the time, yeah,
2: yeah. I mean, like all of, like when we were definitely the kind of family that like when we were little, like we are in, in matching photos, like we're we wearing <laughs> matching outfits and all in photos until we're like twelve, you know. <laughs> it's like, it's like, and like we had like the same hairstyle, I'm, like you know, we just like we everybody thought we were twins. It's like we just like were the Goodman girls, you know, and like I love that so much. Like it's so special, but um you know, we like, you know, screamed and pulled each other's Barbie hair, like all the time, but like, (laughs) you know, I, I don't know, but Claire, that's like really great self-analysis, honestly.
0: (laughs) This is, I'm not in therapy right now, so I'm doing it here instead. I mean, that's what the podcast is for. Um, we both (laughs) get a lot of
1: subsidized therapy from the podcast. Um,
0: (laughs) Yeah, it's interesting also that you say you wanted to like explore all these dynamics because it's not just Stella and Ellie, right? There's also their kind of like shadow um, twins of Raven and Shira, um, who are another sister pair. We only meet Raven, but Shira cast this huge shadow over the book because several years after the cold cases, the last cold case, she disappears while out running and everyone thinks that she is the next victim. The killer has returned. The town's like come back as a tourist destination is compromised. There's a week's long search. Finally, she turns up, she ran away and just like didn't tell anyone where she was. And Raven is dealing personally, like she's still in Edgewater dealing with the fallout of this and the expectations that she might be like her sister in certain ways the need to like distance herself from her sister who has left and so they really take a different path where it seems like there's almost like a we're tied together in this way but for self-preservation maybe we do have to have a real break between us
2: yeah totally um I definitely wanted to have like multiple sisterly relationships in the book because um, I wanted to show like the different kinds of dynamics one could have and and you totally nailed it like Raven and her sister Shira like I I wanted to to show that dynamic where Raven always feels like she's in competition with like a ghost almost even though Shira's still alive she's just like completely disappeared and she's someone who like felt a lot of pressure uh to be perfect and like you know go on you like get a cross-country scholarship and be the best on the team and kind of like what Stella is working towards also but for Shira, it was like too much pressure, and she had to kind of just like drop out of this life and like go rogue. Um, and he, like I, I, I think that she and Ra- she and Raven are like very different sides of sides of the same coin. Um, and I wanted to, sh- I just wanted to show like a different sister dynamic there.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's a great contrast. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I, I would probably prefer to have a sister more like one of the Stecklers, despite. <laughs> um (laughs) despite all of their issues um I mean the Stucklers are interesting lead characters and narrators because they're 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 not very like accessible in a certain way like Stella is very like turned in on herself she's very focused on her running she struggles to relate to the people around her Ellie is different in certain ways um She's more interested in being part of the social scene, but she also has really struggled with like female friendships. They're both sort of like isolated. Why, why did you want to draw them as these characters who really kind of only have each other as friends despite the complications?
2: Um, yeah, that's a great question. I like, didn't even think about the fact that Ellie was like an isolated person until my editor brought it up. And I was like, Oh, okay. Like what, what what is my subconscious trying to say here? (laughs) Um, and I think it was just like, I was just so hyper-focused on this sisterly relationship. And, um, like I, I, wanted these characters to be real contrast, like real contrast of each other. So like where Estella is very like closed off and hardened um, like I wanted Ellie to start the book feeling really open and then kind of like having events happen to her or, you know, making events happen on her own that um, like close her off from the world and like lead her to real trauma that she has to rely on her sister on to like get her out of this. Um, and I don't know. I mean, I, I mean, we could talk about like the, the concept of unlikable girls until the cows come home. And like, I'm not really interested in doing that, but like, <laughs> I, I, I like, the characters that interest me the most are like the messy ones and the ones who like get in trouble and like do crazy things that people don't agree with. And like the reader is like, what are you doing? Like, (laughs) like to me, those are like the, like the characters who are the most real and the most interesting because they reflect real life. You know, like, I think it's really easy to, to write characters who are, you know, the archetypes that we are used to, you know, like the queen bee and the mean girl and like all that kind of stuff and to add layers of complication uh i think makes the story more dynamic hopefully people agree <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah i think most people I there's always so. going to be someone who's like if the main character is not my best friend then i'm not interested but like you really can't write for yeah. that and <laughs> so i think when people productive. say things
2: i think when people say things like oh this character isn't relatable it's like well to you you know like and and does that matter like I don't really need all of the characters that I read to be like carbon copies of myself in fact like I prefer when they're not so I like learn something about the world um so yeah I'm like not I'm not that concerned with that
1: yeah and if you write a character that's so general it's relatable to everyone then like that person isn't an actual person that's
0: how we ended Mm -hmm. up with like Bella Swan and (laughs) (laughs) Anastasia Steele is that I haven't actually read Fifty Shades. No, of that's right.
2: I thought yeah. I, for a second, I was like, do you mean Bella Hadid? And then I, and then I remembered. <laughs> yes, we wrote yeah, Bella, Hadid, we wrote Bella Hadid I
1: mean, frankly, there is like a metaphor in there. <laughs> yeah.
2: Well, the real house I wrote Bella Hadid. But yeah. <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah, exactly. Um, Stella, you know, ends up getting into a bit of a romance with Naomi, Mila's best friend from her hometown in Connecticut. What was that relationship like to write?
2: Oh yeah. That relationship was really lovely to write. And it felt like a really like warm spot in the book. Um, because like, I mean, Stella has like no joy for a lot of the book. Like she like not like she's really closed off. Like bad things will happen to her. She's like, doesn't really have an outlet of like joy and happiness. And I really wanted to give her Something that she could like that would help make her trust people again and introducing a character like Naomi softens her in a lot of ways but also makes her realize that like she doesn't really need to be as closed off as she thought she did it just like it's it's kind of like it's a town problem it's not a her problem you know it's like she just hasn't found the right people that she can like feel open and honest with and giving her someone like Naomi who is very comfortable in her own skin and very open and very warm and very, um, you know, interested in Stella, not just for her running prowess, but for who she is like showing Stella that there is someone out there like that for her, I think like opens up her personality a lot more and, you know, shows that she like, she's just kind of in the wrong place at at the wrong time. But like, if she was in a different situation, like her life might be a lot easier
0: yeah and it's it's interesting because ellie has kind of the opposite trajectory <laughs> right yeah, like poor yeah, ellie yeah.
1: oh god her yeah. oh god yeah. ellie's
0: romantic life man it's a mess this is what um, happens
1: that you trust the wrong boys
0: yeah it's very Even much like you oh, date don't, boys. don't date boys do but... not date boys
1: like this is a, a actually a book about the curse of heterosexuality yeah i mean you said it not
2: me <laughs>
0: Because uh, Ella, Ella, uh, or sorry, Ellie starts out having this sort of affair, I guess, with the captain of the boys cross country team, Noah. And he won't leave his girlfriend, Tamara, who is one of the girls cross country team captains. And um, that's because her father, who also owns and operates Eliquoia Resort, which is like the center of the town's booming tourism industry, um, he went to Princeton he wants Tamara's father to give him a recommendation to Princeton. So he's like, we just have to keep dating for like another year, no big deal, <laughs> you'll <laughs> wait for that. And um, their relationship very quickly in the book falls apart and there's a lot of fallout. Um, I mean, on some level, were you just like, don't date boys? Like, where, where did, why did it feel important to have this kind of relationship arc for Allie?
2: Oh God. Um, I think what, I, I don't know if my point was like, don't date boys. But <laughs> I oh, think is
1: that too simplistic? <laughs> I think just like when,
2: oh, I don't know, whenever I'm drafting a book in the beginning, it's always just like, who's the villain? Well, the boy,
1: like <laughs> <laughs> obviously. <laughs> Duh.
2: That's not, that's not a spoiler for this book, um, for what it's worth. But I think it's just like, I, I, I wanted like, I don't know I just like I really just felt in my heart of hearts that like this character would exist in this town where he thinks that he's like smarter than everybody and like it can pull over a fast one on these like two brilliant girls and it's like no dude like you you really just like can't do that um
0: (laughs) he's reading them like Kerouac
2: (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah it, yes I mean that is like my favorite thing to slip in as like a tell when like a high school boy is reading Kerouac and it's like come <laughs> on, oh, <my laughs> you're dude. like oh like, this dude is a huge douchebag <laughs> yeah exactly um but it's so funny like in my first book they wish they were us like I remember going through edits with my editor and she at one point she was like like she was, at one point she was just like I think we need some like positive men in this book like maybe we can like um you know, soften one of these characters or something, and then, like, she brought it up again in this book, and we actually ended up, like, um, tweaking the thought, fa- like, the Steckler father a little bit to make him, like, a, a like, a solid, a more solid uh, character, um, because I guess, I don't know, I guess it's just, like, my inkling to write, like, bad men, which is, like, Oh, great. Like I have a wonderful male partner and like, I love my dad. And stuff. <laughs> like, I don't know. <laughs> like I am the daughter of a dad. Um, and, <laughs> um, I don't know. I think it's just like interesting in literature when that happens, but maybe it's more interesting when, when the guys are good and that you know,
0: I don't, don't
2: know. know. Now I'm thinking hard about how I want to write the boys in my next book. But, next
0: book. but like, there's a lot of history of literature of men being quite heroic. You know. Yeah. I, worry I, about I it. think we can
1: even the scales a little bit. It's, it's okay, okay. Great. Yeah. 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 You have um, our permission, Jess. Yeah. To write for any terrible men is what we're. T- <laughs> Tell if you want if, you want, if you want.
2: Okay, good. If you want to read some heroic men, just go read Parawak,
1: I guess, yeah. Yeah, I do think, yeah, but Noah, I think that character would exist. Like there is so much just unearned male entitlement that you see kind of frankly, like at every stage of life as, as a woman. But definitely when you're coming of age, sort of this like unearned confidence that a lot of boys, especially I think like hallowed male athletes, Really, um, are are given by the their peers and the adults around them, and I felt like that really came through in the in the character of Noah.
0: Yeah, there's something about like the flip side of the way that the girls are very controlled and expected to control themselves, and part of the flip side of that is that men expect to assert their dominance by physically controlling girls, and you see that like more kind of gently depicted through like the coach and the the um, detective who's leading the investigation kind of putting all of these restrictions in place for the girls, but you also see it in Noah in this more like visceral teenage boy way um, where he expects to be able to like act out at the girls in a certain way and get away with it and like assert his power over them. Um, I also thought it was so funny that he was obsessed with getting an alumnus <laughs> recommendation to Princeton. Oh yeah, you went like, to Princeton. I did, um, sorry to everyone, <laughs> um, but like, and it's it's this running question for Ellie, like why is he so fixated on Princeton and getting this recommendation? And um, partly, you know, it's just like, that's no guarantee that he would get in. So he's like dating someone for a whole year, like, for a, like a maybe but also it's like it's so hilarious that all the girls are working so hard mm-hmm. to get running scholarships <laughs> and like they're obsessing over their times and noah's like i'm gonna go to princeton you know i'm just gonna do that i'm gonna like get a recommendation and just go there that's just so hilarious to me
2: yeah i mean y- y- yes it's ridiculous he's extremely misguided
0: (laughs) (laughs) what a misguided teenager I (laughs) never heard of those (laughs) never met him um so the Stecklers like obviously are really motivated not just by the desire to get out of Edgewater generally but like that they have this this rough family history you mentioned that you made the dad a little less unstable in the final version and Their parents are both essentially functional throughout the book, but they have this past of being pretty incompetent parents. Uh, Their mom is an alcoholic in recovery. There's this fear that she'll relapse. Um, We also learn that Mila's father has addiction issues that sort of led to her moving from her hometown to Edgewater. Um, So this ends up being kind of like a central for us, like a lot of the main characters have this background of addiction in the family. Um, was that like a conscious choice? Like, where did that come from? Why did you want to explore that?
2: Yeah. I mean, I, it was a conscious choice for sure. And I think something that I really wanted to like illustrate was how being the child of this kind of, um, disease can affect you. Like it, it it can manifest in in multiple ways. Like the trauma of that is not just defined in, in one specific way. And I think you see that like, even with Stella and Ellie, like their mom's alcoholism has affected them really differently, even though they are only like 14 months apart or something like that. Like Ellie has night terrors and she, you know, wakes up in cold sweats and she like can't sleep. And she has, she has this kind of visceral reaction to it, even though at the time of the alcoholism, of her mother's alcoholism, she like, wasn't really conscious of what was going on. Whereas Stella um, has, you know, and Ellie also becomes very like eager to please and wants approval in a lot of ways. And like, those are symptoms of trauma in one way, whereas Stella who was more conscious of it during the moment, like just completely closes off and like, doesn't really trust her mom and like, doesn't want her, doesn't want to do anything to upset her mom. And when she does do something that upsets her mom, she like really feels a lot of shame and guilt about that. Um, and, and, you know, she kind of just wants to fend for herself in a lot of ways and not put that pressure on her, her family to take care of her. And, you know, I think it was important for me to show that like both of those reactions to trauma are valid. Like there, there is no one way to react to to this kind of thing. Um, and so that was, that was, you know, what that, that was my intention with, with those, you know, additional like traits, I would say.
1: Yeah. Something else that I wanted to talk about is the setting of the book because the Catskills feels very present. Um, it's almost like it's it's, in, it's key to the entire feel of the novel. Why set your book in the Catskills? Um,
2: well, I know you love the Catskills. I am I'm an, an enthusiast. <laughs> <laughs> I would say Emma is like the next generation of like, inf- like Catskills influencers. I feel like could make <laughs> yeah. that
1: happen for sure. Um
2: <laughs> it's I, like the
1: media pivot to video. This is my pivot to the really cat to Catskill's influencer.
2: <laughs> I really love that for you. I think th- I think there's like a strong trajectory here. Um I mean, look, I think the Catskills are like so beautiful and so gorgeous, like just so full of life um in the summer. And every time I've been there in the winter, it feels so different and spooky and scary and um really kind of creepy in a lot of ways and so it's like I remember spending like a couple week weekends up there um, around when I was like thinking about this about like starting to write this book and I was like oh my god this would be like such a cool setting for this like to go to an area like you know I I am like a Brooklyn yuppie and like I make fun of Brooklyn yuppies in the book for like going up to these like small towns and being like ooh, like let me have your natural wine and like let me buy your artisanal cheeses and like all this stuff but then kind of like dipping out when things get hard like in the winter like what I was saying mm. so I really wanted to write a story about a town that like feels like a vacation town when it's not vaca- like but but when it's not vacation like I love books that are set in those kind of places um I think they're so interesting and I just love like small town politics but something I was also interested in was like the tension that a lot of these towns and the Catskills are going through right now like where Brooklyn yuppies like are starting I mean this has accelerated a lot in the pandemic but like Brooklyn Yuppies like are starting to move up there or buy property there and like change the dynamics um, and the you know the like the class level of these towns in a lot of ways and making you know it's like the gentrification of the mountains, um, and I was really interested in like what that looks like from the perspective of the people who live there, um, you know the people who are the people who welcome change. But the people, but also the people who who are like, well, I wish all of these things would go away, and like, what does this mean for our own like little economic engine? Um, so I did a lot of research on like these these kinds of um, the the towns and like the demographics there and what what their pain points were. Um, but also like, I, I mean, I think I one of my favorite parts of the book was writing. Um, this this resort the eloquia mountain resort which yes. um is yeah it's like this kind of like really it's like the luxury hotel of my dreams that um Tamara Johnson's family owns and it's like the economic engine of the town it employs like a lot of people and her you know the johnsons have bu- built it from like a tiny little motel into like the the travel destination with like a spa and basketball courts and tennis courts and you know like it's a wedding venue and whatever I'm like now just describing it because I like love it so much and I like want (laughs) to live there but um like that part was so fun for me because the Catskills has such a rich history of hospitality like obviously um you know there's like the dirty dancing era Borscht Belt family resorts that are kind of having like a comeback now but um in doing my research like I also found that there was um it, there was like one black owned hotel uh, or like a hotel resort up there in like the through from the sixties to the eighties. And it was like very popular with like um, you know, like black people in New York, like going up for the weekends and having these like incredible social experiences and like, you know, amazing live music and food and like all this stuff. And so um, I wanted to like kind of just play around with that history. Cause I find it like so fascinating and there's so many cool books out there about like, you know the the history of like hotels and the Catskills it's just awesome
1: oh my gosh you're making me want to read all of those books because there is something so fascinating about the fact that the Catskills has been this kind of haven for marginalized communities that lived in the city um and so but in being that haven there also is like a fundamental tension um when the money that is is flooding into that town is uneven with the people who are there year round and that's that's just a really fascinating tension that I think you capture in this book in a really great way. And it's, it's a lot of fun as a reader to sort of feel transported there.
0: Yeah. Yeah. There's something so interesting about the, I feel like when you're coming from the sort of neoliberal, like white, bougie, middle upper class perspective, like gentrification, it's like, oh, we're making it it's better there now. And that's good for everyone. And what you see with the the girls who grew up in this community and live there and and, uh, have roots there is that they're not benefiting from that enough to feel like they should stay. Like it's still a place for them to escape um, and, or where they might get pushed out. Um, And those are kind of like the two things like either they're going to have to like flee because the conditions for people of their class or or general background are still not improving or they're not going to be able to afford to stay and that's kind of how the process goes um I did love the descriptions of that resort I really I was like I want to go on vacation it was so fun to write (laughs) yeah it was
2: really fun I was just like I just want to like build my
0: hotel like yeah this book Honestly, if I wrote fiction, the problem would be that it would all just be like, here's a beautiful setting where I would love to be, and everyone's wearing beautiful clothes that I would like to be wearing, and they're having conversations I would like to have, and everyone would be like, I don't understand why I'm reading this, but you balance it very well with all of the drama and tension, um, which is all all you can ask. No, thank you. I would
2: read a book. I would just read a book of beautiful descriptions by you, though.
0: (laughs) I'll think about it. Um, you bring up the, the Black-owned resort that kind of inspired you, and, and Eloquia is run by the Johnson family, and they're Black. Otherwise, Edgewater is mostly depicted as quite white, at least the characters that, that we get to know, um, aside, I guess, from Mila. Um, and, you know, t- there, neither of them are, like, kind of characters we know in the sense of you know they're not narrators. They're they're a little bit more at arm's length. Um, what were you looking to explore with like Tamara's family and their role, and and with these two characters um, more generally about how their race played a role in this setting?
2: Yeah, um, yeah, this was uh, something that I worked on quite a bit, and with a lot of help from not only my editors, but authenticity and sensitivity readers that we had, um, who read the book specifically for Mila and Tamara, um, like, to, to help out with that, and, you know, I'm so grateful for them, um, grateful to them for pointing out some things that, like, I would have missed as, like, a white woman writing, writing these characters, even though it, the book is not from their perspectives. Um, I mean, I think, like, inserting these characters and, and, you know, identifying their race as such, like Amila, Amila is, um, she's half Puerto Rican and her, her father's white. Um, but her mother is Puerto Rican. And I, I wanted that, that, like, I, I wanted that depth in this book, you know, like, I think, um, having that like there's uh, like let me say it this way there's there's a scene in the book where Stella and Tamara are having like they're, uh, they're one and only basically of their entire like you know life living in this town like a heart to heart where Stella like assumes that everything is really easy for Tamara because Stella is you know a white girl of some sort of privilege and she but she thinks that like you know the world is out to get her in a lot of ways and she's never once considered the way that like Tamara operates in this town as one of the only black girls and you know, Tamara is really honest with her about um, the kinds of like shit she has to go through and like shit that, ta- that Stella like wouldn't even think about. And, you know, I wanted Stella to um, like understand her privilege in a way that she hadn't before. But, you know, I I didn't want Tamara's character to only exist as a way for Stella to do that. Like I wanted Tamara to have her own arc as well and to be like a fully realized person. And I, I think I, I hope readers agree that she is. Um, it was something that we worked on quite a bit. But like I think that um like having that level of depth to the book, I think is important because it's like otherwise it's just a book about like white girls running around, which like isn't that you know, isn't that interesting or important or necessary? Um and you know, I think I think that's what we were hoping to accomplish here.
0: Yeah, it's it's an interesting like intersection with with the question of how the the girls are expected to like perform a certain kind of like restrained femininity um despite their human feelings or ambitions and like Tamara has to add this like additional layer of like effortlessness to it even mm-hmm. um that maybe stella and ellie can get away with a little bit more like you know they're not actively like doing crimes maybe in the moment uh, that we see them, but they're not being super friendly either. And Tamara's like really got to, to seem like the happiest, chillest girl in the room. Um, And I thought that was, that was really well done. Um, But at its heart, this is really a murder mystery and we're um, like an and we haven't in. spoiled it yet so it's time <laughs> let's do it who's we're the an killer? hour and
1: we're like there is murder here
0: too there's murder in this there's book.
1: murder that's what makes it fun
0: murder you is fun. actually you actually do take a little bit to get to the murder in the book we really kind of get to know the victim first Mila uh why did you like place the murder at that point in the book yeah,
2: this was a conversation that I have with my editor quite a bit, too. I was very concerned that, like, it was too slow in the beginning and that, like, we wanted to, like, really speed it up and get to murder. <laughs> but um, it was really important to give Mila a voice and for people to kind of, like, fall in love with her I because th- she's, like, very charming and very kind and very smart and very fast, you know? And I wanted people to, like, get to know her before and let her speak for herself in a lot of ways before... Um, she disappears. (laughs) Um, and yeah. And and, yeah, I mean, so I think that like in order to do that, like that in order to do that, like it it took some time to get there. Um, but also like, I think there are like a few other central mysteries to this story. Like Stella starts the book with like this violent past that you don't really know about in the beginning. And so like, just from like a structural standpoint, like having that question linger over the book was like the way that I, um, tried to infuse tension for, for pacing effect, you know, until like keep people guessing about like, well, what did, what did Stella do? Did she actually do it? Like, what are people like, what is going on with that part of this, the mystery as well. So I tried to like weave in a few different mysteries. So you weren't just kind of like, all right, like when are we getting, let's get to the thing? murder
0: count. They're just down. going on happy runs together. <laughs> yeah, exactly. no, there's,
1: there's definitely a lot of, a lot of tension. And I also think by delaying the murder, You, you do end up avoiding the problem that I think a lot of like true crime, um, media has, has fallen into, which is that the victims that are often women of these stories end up becoming tools and symbols rather than complete people. And Mila is really a complete person. As you said, she has a very strong voice. She makes real connections with the other characters. She's not just kind of a, a plot device
2: that was really important for me um, because that is like my absolute pet peeve of like all true crime content is like where you don't even like get to know the victim at all. Um, and it's just like, like, I, I hate when you're like watching something and you're like, okay, why do I know so much about the killer? Like, I know everything from like the way that he, you know, talked to his mother for like what he, and like what he ate for breakfast. But like, I couldn't tell you a single thing about the victim. And like, how messed up is that? Like, that's absolute garbage. Like that's, that's just like, not what I was interested in doing. So
0: yeah, 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 and lo- like the whole like template that I think we often operate from with with murder mysteries and true crime, but fiction too is like centered around the cop or detective, and it opens with like the discovery of the body, and it's like often really pr- prurient, like you know a nude woman in the woods or whatever, and that's the first time you see them, and it follows the cop's investigation, and by, like, immersing us in the social scene of the high school instead, you completely, like, subvert that, that dynamic, that power dynamic. And the detective is just kind of this, like, clueless outsider who, like, barely figures in it at all.
2: Yeah, totally. I mean, the only, the only detective that I'm in love with these days is Mayor. you know?
0: Oh, Mayor, Oh, Mayor, Who <laughs> could resist Kate Winslet saying murder?
1: I Could not listen I. to it all day. Everyone who listens to Rich Checks knows how I feel about Mare. Claire does not have quite such warm feelings. They're complicated. But <laughs> they're complicated.
0: I do like Kate Winslet there. saying water. Yeah, I resent <laughs> that her name rhymes with mine. It's a problem. Uh, it's like I need to distance myself. Yeah, too, from close, her. too close, Kate Winslet. <laughs> um, but another. Th- element that this brings though is that like we end up getting to know all these girls who have all these different feelings of guilt and culpability about all these different things that are going on in their lives like you mentioned Stella's um past sort of mysterious physical altercation that she had uh with an with another runner that ruined her reputation Ellie had some shit go down in her relationship with Noah and after it falls apart she's sort of realizing like, oh, I did something messed up to Tamara by pursuing that relationship. Um, And, you know, a lot of characters are going through something like this. And then ultimately we have to like find the the killer, right? Like the real killer. And I just, I don't know. I, I was left kind of wondering, like, how do you approach the question of like, of guilt for these young women, like separating the question of, young girls make mistakes, they have flaws, they have ambition, they have desires that are selfish, um, and that's human, and they should be able to, like, make those and move on with their lives, and then separating that from, like, throw this person in jail, you know, sort of ending of a murder mystery, you know, like, how do how were you thinking about, like, charting all of those, like, experiences of guilt and blame
2: Yeah, I mean, that's really interesting. It's a really interesting question. Um, I think with all of these characters and with this story specifically, I wanted what happened and the killer to be believable. Um, And I wanted it to feel like like what happened to feel like a byproduct of the environment that they were in. So what I mean by that is that like Edgewater and the cross country team is like a very competitive, very, um, like nasty environment. And these girls felt like they had to do whatever it took to win and get out and be the best. And I think that that often like was misguided, like, you know, their decisions were misguided in a lot of ways, obviously. Um, and I, you know, I mean, I think that they, like, I mean, are we like fully spoiling the book or no?
0: Oh no, I didn't No, 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 oh, okay. I don't think we should. <laughs> okay. I don't
2: think we should. I was right. kidding. Okay, great. <laughs> yeah. Okay, good. Because I was like, I was like coming To close, be so clear, like, everyone,
0: you need to buy
1: the book <laughs> you need to in order book. to be spoiled. Okay. <laughs> okay. So let
2: me try to speak about this
1: abstractly. Like, I think that like people
2: are products of their environment. Like, I just like totally believe that, like where you grow up, like definitely affects you, like with the kind of family you're in and like what you're interested in and like how people treat you like that, that is like, for sure, it just like affects your decision making, I think. And like what happens in this town and on this team, like drives some people to make really bad decisions and they should be held accountable for them. But I think like, they're like, those things don't exist in vacuums. You know, it's like when you want to look at like what's happening in a certain town or like what. Kind of crime like I mean look I, honestly like mayor of east town is like a pretty good example of it it's like you want to look like why like why do bad things happen in, in east town and it's like it's not because of like one rotten apple it's like you look around and it's like okay what are the people doing here like what's going on like what are the economics of the town and what's the industry like here and where are the jobs and you know how are people treating each other and like I think you just like can't divorce um the actions from from the setting in a lot of ways. So like by by put by pl- it's almost like you place these people in Edgewater, where my book is, and it's like, well, what do you expect to happen? You know, it's like mm. they, they are predisposed, disposed to like anger and rage, and um, they're put in a put in a world where that doesn't um appreciate that and like doesn't have a way to doesn't foster like constructive ways of dealing with those emotions. So, like, what's going to happen when i get angry? Like bad things, you know?
0: Yeah, a lot of desperate people. I don't think that's a spoiler. Everyone no. in the book is essentially it is desperate. a desperate
1: person. Yeah. <laughs>
0: You that is, like, all desperate. Des-
1: that is you very much my not my, a spoiler. Like, um, yeah, and- I was going to say,
2: could you, could you sense my desperation of like oh. living in the pandemic? <laughs>
0: <laughs> like I have to leave my apartment. Edgewater, Edgewater. Yeah, yeah.
1: yeah we yeah. are. We are all cloistered beings now in some exactly. way, both emotionally and physically. So this is what the pandemic has has wrought. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and something else you wanted to bring up is. You know, both of your books, their titles start with the word they, and that feels really fitting because they both sort of explore the dynamics of being inside and outside of specific groups. Why is that a dynamic that you seem to be repeatedly drawn to, like being inside a tight clique surrounded by a bunch of outsiders sort of peering in?
2: I just think group dynamics are like fascinating, um, especially co-ed dynamics. Um, Like I'm particularly interested in the power dynamics between young women and men um, and like how women how young women like and girls just kind of like are able to like find their own agency in those groups because I felt like when I was growing up like it 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 seemed really hard to do that. Um, And yeah I mean I think just like groups are great for storytelling because they're so messy and there's so much action and there's so many conversations that can happen like I think it's really awesome and and like impressive when people have like really small casts in their book um be like because I can't do that like I need I need just like a lot of people for my main characters to like bounce around with and like get messy and get you know like have crazy altercations with because um that's what feels like most natural to me but you know I I I just I just feel like that's where like that's my sweet spot um In terms of like storytelling, where I'm like, okay, like what other kinds of characters can we introduce to kind of like mess this up for them?
0: Yeah, it's very. There's like your books have a great like gossipy feel, like that feel, like the 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 element of like you're watching other people's high school drama play out is so satisfying.
1: It really Um, is, as disturbing Um, as that sounds. Another thing that I desperately missed during quarantine not, enough, yeah. gossip, not so. enough gossip. Oh my God. So much yeah. gossip. I need it. <laughs> Thank you for writing some gossip to fill You're the so void welcome. for me personally is what I'm saying. <laughs>
2: yeah, yeah. You can get really into this like Catskills high school drama. That, that'll that be good for you. <laughs> yeah.
0: Also like I was such a such a nerd in high school. Like I didn't even experience it then. So it's like I'm reliving my youth and it's much more exciting this time. more murder definitely me too (laughs) (laughs) Uh, and both of your novels have also of course like focused really closely on teenage girls why why do you think that they're so compelling for you to write like as central characters in these books
2: um great question I think that there's just like not enough content out there about teenage girls um and like the complexities of girls like we've I've read so many stories about boys and men, um, as you said earlier. And I think that there's just like still so much, so many more young women that I want to read about and that I want to write about. Um, And I think also just like when you're a teenage girl, like when you're 16, it's like, Oh my God, your emotions are like level 10 all the time. Everything is so high stakes, even like, you know, everything, anything from like, who you're going to sit with at lunch to a murder, like all of those things could like have equal weight in your brain. And like, I don't know, like what, what is more interesting than the brain of a teenage girl? Like I genuinely don't know because that is just what, that is what fascinates me. It's like always the era that I am most concerned with. Like, and if you like highbrow or lowbrow, you know, like Gossip Girl or like, I don't know what's like, I can't think of like the most highbrow teenage girl content, but like it's out there <laughs> somewhere. Like I'm just like fascinated by it. And I find it like endlessly interesting and compelling and, um, hard and I also think there is like a nostalgic factor there you know like there's a reason why a lot of YA is has a has a crossover feel because I think some people you know enjoy spending time in that world when the stakes felt really high but maybe necessarily like weren't like you there is a there is if you're in a stable family like there is some sort of level of safety there um and a lot of my characters are in stable families even if they um think that they're not or if they've had unstable periods and so like I think that there's just something kind of like nice about being like cocooned in safety even if you are going through something like a town murder like you know it's like it's just a different level of um independence at that at that age but it's hard because you're also like struggling you're like so obsessed with like being independent and like getting out on your own but like having the ability to like fall back into safety um It's, I mean, it's just hard. It's, and it's, it's just interesting to me. I'm like, I could like, I could keep going forever, but that's why.
1: (laughs) And that tension is sort of universally relatable. It's probably the the same reason that we all really love Olivia Rodrigo's album, even though we are (laughs) old. You know, there is, there is something about teenagehood that you can tap back into almost like on command. Um, yeah. And you capture that really well.
0: And like, I don't want to listen to pop music about <laughs> my TurboTax filing. I'm sorry, even if that's what my life is now. It's not interesting to me in <laughs> pop culture. <laughs> Deal with it. There's something about like the coming of age novel is so like it's such a classic form. And a lot of them have been about boys. But I think especially now there's just so much pressure on women at that age, but also it's because it's supposed to be sort of your glory time. And like, it's rapidly downhill for you after that. And you're a quick slide into irrelevance once you turn 30. Um, It's great on the other side, by the way, doing really well. Um, But like, it's hard not to have some nostalgia for that time when like, it was really hard and high pressure, but also it was maybe the time when other people treated you the most like you were valued and what you did could be really great and exceptional and you were expected to like achieve in some way now I'm sad mm-hmm. but yeah there and the, the you know the book really explores why that's double-sided of course because being treated like you're, you need to achieve in some way can also be very objectifying to these women sorry, did I make it dark right at the end here?
1: <laughs> yeah, I'm going to go weep <laughs> Thank you, Claire, for really bringing the mood down. No, but I think that what you're saying is really true. And I think that it's really a testament to your writing Jess, that there are so many different threads that we can kind of pull on. And the fact that the experience of reading the book is also really fast paced and fun. Um, in addition to leaving you with all these kind of nuggets to chew on and frankly, that is like what I love about, about novels in general.
2: Well, thank you. That's really, really kind, really nice.
0: (laughs) Well, that's it for this book club episode of rich text. Jess, thank you so, so, so much for chatting with us today. Congratulations on pub day. Uh, Do you want to let listeners know where to find you on social, where to find your book?
2: yes um well first of all thank you guys so much for having me this is so fun what a delight um and you can find me on instagram at jessica goodman you can find me on twitter at just good and feel free to pick up the book wherever you want um obviously indie bookstores are the best place to buy books so you can support your local community bookstore um if you want a signed copy you can order one from books are magic or green light bookstore in brooklyn but um
1: Yeah. Thank you guys so much. Ooh, we love, we love a signed copy. Thank you again, Jess. And of course you guys can find uh, me and Claire on rich text at claireandemma.substack.com. And also on our podcast, love to see it with Emma and Claire. We will be back next time with another book club.